It kind of needs a spacey theme like welcome to the verbal remedy podcast people be like what are you doing welcome to the verbal remedy podcast if you haven't heard of verbal remedy before we're a petition signing taboo tackling blog project from the uk and our aim is to tackle tough issues through various multimedia projects there are literally hundreds of posts to sink your teeth into over on our website which is verbalremedy.co.uk. So the idea behind our podcast is simple. Over five episodes, we ask our authors and some special guests to get together and discuss issues that mean a lot to them and stories coming up in the media. From P&G's Innovation Centre in Newcastle to the Nissan factory in Sunderland, STEM is one of the North East's biggest assets. But with certain tech companies in the region recently reporting gender pay gaps of almost 30%, it's clear that there's a whole lot to be done before we're seeing true diversity within the industry. For our second podcast of 2018, we've delved a little further into science, mechanics, gaming and more to find out what it's really like for women and minority ethnic communities to get their foot in the door. First up, we have Ikra, who, when she's not writing articles for Verbal Remedy, is busy studying for her PhD in Manchester. Without really thinking about it, I've realised I've always done something when I find myself in a science or STEM setting. I always look around the room to see how many other people of colour there are in the room with me. I always scan my surroundings and wonder if I'll see any semblance of diversity. When I was in high school and I glanced back at the rest of the students from my vantage point at the front of Mr Day's science class on a Monday afternoon, I'd be greeted with half a class that wasn't white. From other South Asian girls in hijabs to black girls with their hair in locks, mixed race girls and students whose parents hailed from China and Vietnam and Japan. I was one of a whole host of women of colour studying science subjects for GCSE. I didn't realise then how rare that was. It was an all-girls school, so I never experienced being a woman in a male-dominated science environment. And in retrospect, maybe this has helped me to cultivate my early confidence in my abilities as a scientist and an academic. Moving to college after my high school on the other side of the city brought change in many ways. I was in class with boys again for the first time in five years, for one. But being part of a tiny cohort of international baccalaureate students gave me a really skewed perception, again, of how diverse science was. Of our cohort of 20 or so students, a quarter of the students weren't white, and most of us were women, so once again, I was in a situation where I felt comfortable and capable. Looking back now, and knowing what I know now, about the lack of racial diversity in labs across the Western world and the lack of support for students and scientists who face the effects of unconscious racial bias on a daily basis. I wonder to what extent my early experiences with science blinded me to the challenges ahead. University was a shock to the system. I was studying a physiological sciences degree. I was following my intense curiosity about the human body so that I could learn about the systems that made it up 
and the processes that regulated our lives, from breathing to movement, reproduction to diseases. I loved it. I did struggle with the lack of diversity on my course, though. Of the 60-odd students on my course, the brown and black faces were few and far between. There were about 10 people who weren't white, a few black students from down south or abroad, another Pakistani girl and guy, and three students from East Asian backgrounds. It sounds like a lot, but for me, it was a big change. For the first time, I was obviously in the minority and faced with people who'd never met a Muslim or someone of Pakistani descent, let alone a female Muslim Pakistani scientist. With academia in the UK, the further up you go, the less of us people of colour you'll find. Until I undertook my final project and my dissertation at the Institute of Genetic Medicine, I hadn't come across a single PhD student at university who wasn't white. I was placed in a lab with an Algerian scientist called Samaya, and for the first time, I saw someone who looked like me, further up the career ladder. A shout out to Dr Al Kandiri for showing me that it was possible for a hijab-wearing Muslim woman of colour to make it past the undergraduate level. When I started my second degree, I moved back to Manchester, where I hail from. It's a racially diverse city, and a part of me was hoping that on my MSc in science communication, I'd find more people like me. On our course, there were three people of colour. Me, my good friend Alicia, and Mina, another Pakistani girl. The course was great, and I didn't face anywhere near the level of microaggressions I'd faced when in the lab, but I was becoming uncomfortably aware that academia didn't seem to be retaining people of colour especially men, and I didn't really know why. Now, I'm a PhD student. I'm also the only PhD student of colour in both my department and the research institute I'm affiliated with. I recently went to an event run by the Economic and Social Research Council, who fund my research into Antarctic science, history and policy. Of the 80 students in that lecture theatre, I could only see one other brown face. In our department, on a staff of about 25, only one lecturer is brown. There are no black academics or PhD students. I'm not familiar enough with all the issues that non-white people face in academic institutions yet, from unconscious biases which hinder us in both hiring practices and grant applications, to blatant racism and the difficulty that comes with trying to blaze a trail as an academic in very white institutions. I'm becoming more and more aware as I get older. For now, I cling on to the first step of a precarious career ladder that so many of my peers never made it to. Who do you think of when you imagine the people making and testing your favourite video games? They probably look nothing like our next writer, Celeste. I'll let her explain. I am a video game tester. When you imagine a video game tester, you probably see a guy sitting at home in a comfortable chair in the middle of half a dozen screens, headphones on, dark room and a lot of money. My reality is way less glamorous. I go to an office with two screens and a computer that can sometimes be really slow. I usually don't wear my headphones to be able to hear people talking to me and I don't make much money. Oh, and I'm a woman, although I can understand people forget about us, with only 19% of the workforce being women compared to 41% of actual gamers. Talking to people around me in the industry, I realised quickly after starting my job that people have a lot of misconceptions around it. 
First of all, it's not easy and it's not secure. We work by project, which means that we add up a lot of short contracts. We can stay two years in a firm as often as we stay for only a couple of months. Only 14% of the workforce is freelance, but amongst the 86% left, around 50% of employees are contractors. In a way, that can be nice because you have a lot of opportunities for change and are not too bound to one place. But at the same time, it leads to being uncertain all the time and it's not easy for finding a place to live or getting used to a country when you feel like it's potentially not worth the energy. Every couple of months, I have to think about what my options are if my contract isn't renewed. Sometimes I wonder about the kinds of future opportunities I can hope for. Not many people know the gaming industry in detail, and not all understand that we have many transferable skills. Outside of gaming, we're considered men who are not providers and live in their parents' basements, and women too geeky to be serious enough for any other job. I always thought this image of the industry was sadly distorted, knowing that gaming firms generate around £2 billion every year in the UK alone, meaning employees there are not lazy nor underqualified to be part of a developing industry. Of course, people talk about virtual reality and all that kind of technology, but it's hard to bet on it. In a way, it reminds me of the Kinect. It was a huge revolution to be able to play a game by moving your body rather than a controller. In the end, what's left of it are a few old games that no one really plays anymore. But I can see that we want to experiment and are ready to try new things. The amount of gaming conventions around the world and Europe makes me think that we might be beginning to see gaming as a viable career. Now don't get me wrong, if I knew what I do now about video games when I applied for the first time, I would still do it all over again, because I do love my job, and I do love the fact that I can say that. But when I hear people telling me how lucky I am, I want them to remember this. I believe there are three things that make your job. How much you like it, the salary, and the stability. Everyone probably has at least one of those that they can say does not fulfil their requirements, but still you accept it. Maybe you've decided you're okay with having a stable job with a big salary, even though you don't like it. But I decided that loving what I do was more important to me than having a good salary or a stable contract. I could tell you you're lucky to have your salary or a permanent contract, but I know you will have made sacrifices that I would not have made. I have only one wish for those who work in gaming. If you need to be taken seriously in your job, I need to be taken seriously in mine. For our interview for this podcast, I sent Ikra across to Gateshead College to meet Zach, Naomi, Katie and Laura, four professionals and verbal remedy fans working in the field of STEM and responsible for training and recruiting the Northeast's inventors, coders and engineers. How do they see the future of the industry? Let's meet them. Zach Aldridge, Assistant Principal for STEM at Gateshead College. Katie Malia, I teach motor vehicle at Gateshead College. My name's Laura Richards, I'm Head of Communications at Sunderland South by City. Naomi Morrow, I lead the Digital Catapult across the North East and Tees Valley and I'm Head of Innovation for Sunderland Software City. Um, so what do you guys think is particularly good about STEM in the North East and sort of the digital sector up here? 
Um, I think that it's quite a close-knit community, so I think it's quite easy to get a, a good reputation, to get recognised for uh, the really good work that's happening here. I think everybody wants each other to succeed, um, and there are a lot of opportunities for um, smart people to get into the sector. I think we've got a, a really wide range of, of skills and companies that are growing in the northeast. We've got one of the fastest growing digital sectors outside of London, and we've got the the kind of the infrastructure around um, startups and, and companies that are growing to really boost that. So um, business support, networking groups, uh, close knit relationships between educational institutions and business, um, and I think those things combined really has sort of contributed to, to the success of the sectors to date. I think um, from a college point of view, and this, is, this isn't just uh, Gateshead College, but there's a lot of excellent STEM provision in the northeast, particularly around engineering, but also um, also digital. We're right opposite a, a digital hub, which is just across the road, so we've got um, loads of, of uh, qualifications and courses and programmes that prepare young people for careers in, in those sectors. Um, we've just started running the country's first augmented reality study program a level three so there's exciting developments as well as uh, as well as your uh, the standard stem courses that, that most colleges offer we're looking at um, diversifying and, and differentiating our offer as well oh this is a heavy one um does stem still feel like a male oriented subject you guys are obviously in various different <coughs> fields within stem so for me it does i think um most people working uh, in a STEM-related subject or, or um, role has walked into a room and it's been predominantly men in suits that are there or men in t-shirts, depending on, on the audience. Um, unless, you, unless you go to an event that is specifically targeting women in STEM, in which case there's a, a much um, better gender balance. But even the fact that we need to have women in STEM specific subjects and specific events and specific opportunities suggests to me that we haven't yet achieved gender equality or gender equity in the in the sector. It is absolutely is a male dominated subject area. The enrolments and recruitment we have to our STEM related courses um, are you know, way below other courses in terms of female participation. Um, we have four or five engineering students who are female out of about 400 yeah. um, automotive no, no automotive female students Dis all. yeah despite the many efforts that we make to try and increase participation we have no automotive female students on our courses yeah. this year in, in my opinion, I would say it is as well. Um, I tend to be the only female, um, especially when you get to a certain level, uh, at certain dinners and things like that. And there's always an assumption, even though I'm uh, head of my uh, department, that I have a, a male boss, which I do, but there's always an assumption that um, people would prefer to speak to him, um, which can be frustrating sometimes. Um, I, I recently had a conversation with somebody that said, um, so, why, why do we need to, if there's no interest from females to get into the sector, why do we need to try and combat the issue? Is the really an issue um, when there's certain sectors that have more females in them? Um, but I think that unless we encourage women to get into the tech sector, we'll never know what they're capable of. Um, and I think there's a, 
uh, opportunity to have such a diverse uh, sector, especially in the northeast, to lead the way. Um, and there are roles that don't necessarily have to be technical, but if we encourage women to explore those roles and even technical roles, we might end up something with uh, that's great. I think things are getting a little bit better. Like it's definitely not as bad as it was a few years back. And there's a, an increase in the number of sort of high-profile female role models in the sector. We are starting to see a, a more diverse um, range of people represented in in recruitment campaigns and advertising campaigns, and even at conferences and, and on panels. Um, but there's still quite a long way to go until until that feels like it's equal. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is schools. I think schools from primary school they should be introducing STEM, not just to boys but to to girls as well. I went to a girls school and um, being completely honest I didn't even know there was such thing as a tech sector and we're not talking that long ago um, and I think the the way we're moving um, we don't just need uh, people skills within the tech sector we need technical skills across all sectors um, so we need to open those roles up to um, all schools all individuals within schools um, and the tech sector can be sexy um, it can be really cool and how do we get um, school children to understand that and really see it for what it is. Yeah. I wanted to ask how male dominated is your specific sort of workplace and, and how does that affect you sometimes? So we're really lucky at Sunderland Software um, City that we've got a very female heavy team. Mm-hmm. Um, we're well, out of a team of 10, there's seven women working uh, in the tech sector and three men. You're not walking into a, a room full of white men sitting behind a computer coding away like it, we're, we're practicing what we preach in, in that actually it's the tech sector um, encompasses lots of different people lots of different job roles lots of different personality types um, and a lot of the work we do with schools and colleges also tries to kind of do that myth busting to, to mm. break down some of the stereotypes that exist college wise um, our principal is female and so are a lot of college principals in the region um, so that's that's unusual and that's that's great. She's a Judith's a really good role model. Um, Staff-wise, the makeup of our staff overall, we have more females than males. But as you would expect in the subjects, if we talk about teachers, in engineering, in motor vehicle, in IT, um, we have uh, way more men than women, and we can't recruit women to engineering and motor vehicle in particular. Katie's one of two in motor vehicle, we have one female in engineering, so that's three staff out of a department of about 35 who are who are um, female. Um, and that doesn't help when we're trying to recruit students because you know one of our strategies to, in- to increase the uptake of females in STEM subjects is to use Katie as a role model, which she does mm-hmm. fantastically well. But if more females were more visible to our students, I'm sure that would help. But when we advertise those job roles, we don't get the applications from from female teachers because there aren't that many of them. Um, So we're also looking at how the language we use to advertise our vacancies might be subconsciously or unconsciously biased towards males applying, you know, the type of um, vocabulary we use. Um, But at the minute, we we really struggle to get any applications from from females to teach on, on the subjects that Katie teaches on. Teaching mechanics was not anything that I ever wanted to do until I had the opportunity to do it. Never even really thought that I could do it until I become a student. And it was through word of mouth that they said, well, Gates at College accepts female students on their course. Why don't you go and try them? It's not really something that was pushed in school or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'd come to the college, it was okay. The 
the male teachers were were fine and they made you feel welcome and things, so they didn't look down on you in 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 any way. Yeah, I I would agree that it's a challenge, and as Laura said, within our team at Sunderland Software City, we're very lucky that um, we we have um, such a diverse team. We we have um, a lot of females, and I think my role I like to um, challenge clients and the sector through that uh, environment. So if I happen to come across an individual who uh, might assume that. Um, maybe I shouldn't be at the level that I am or um, wants to speak to a male colleague. Um, I quite like rising to that challenge and I always like to win them over and kind of prove them wrong. Uh, sometimes it's a long battle, but it's always <laughs> worth it. It's good to see the look on somebody's face when you say, well, I teach mechanics. And they're like, really? You're not like an admin staff or you're not particular, you know, a female role yeah. where people say that's a girl job, that's a boy job or whatever else. It's, it's good to see people's face when you do say yeah. it. You know, <laughs> kind of got there. From a, a Gateshead College point of view we do lots of things, lots of specific discrete projects aimed at trying to increase um, female participation in our STEM subjects. So we have a project called The Bridge which is aimed at exactly that. What, what initiatives can we introduce to increase female participation in STEM? Um, we have um, a career college running in construction which uh, teaches 14 to 16 year olds about construction and architectural engineering and all that sort of stuff and we've got something like 56% of those students uh, are female I think um, and I think that that's connected to the fact that until you get to 16 science subjects tend to be fairly equally spread in terms of female and male participation it tends to be post 16 and post 18 where there's a huge split and a huge difference in in who goes on to study what um, and the brighter the kids that are doing that career college and they they are female in this instance um, the other thing we do, which, which Katie will, will be able to tell you about her experiences on, is, is using her uh, as a role model to go out and deliver provision in schools. So she goes out and delivers STEM subjects to school kids, not specifically targeted at females, although sometimes sometimes it is, mm -hmm. but just for two reasons really. One, you know, we want kids to do STEM subjects because they're better paid and they tend to be you know, more lucrative careers, which people should be able to aspire to. But two, that you know, Katie's done it, so why shouldn't the other girls in those schools? And you might be able to tell them about your experiences on that. Yeah, um, well, I've gone to a number of different schools, um, different events, different year groups, but at the moment I'm working at a um, local primary school with uh, year fours and year sixes. Um, the year fours are a mixed group um, of gender and the year sixes are all girls. But the girls in the group, they're like, what, this, this table's engineered or this phone, you need an engineer to do that? It's trying to broaden their horizon and, and, and thinking about what actually is an engineer, what is a mechanic, what is, you know, working in construction, are trying to cover all of it. So we're doing a five week project where they are building, well, they've designed the car just a little car made out of wood and buttons and they are in the middle of making the car and then next week they're going to be racing the car, uh, this week they're going to be racing the car and there's just been so much interest, so much enthusiasm, motivation and I think with it being a five week project they're not just going to forget about it. So if I went again next year or in a couple of years time they're going to be like oh we're going to do a STEM project or it might change their mind thinking I might go into science, technology, engineering or maths when I'm older rather than doing whatever it is that they were going to do. So I think it's it's really important to go into the schools. Um, and I, I found it really interesting, but again, we're not going to see results from this for, for quite a while. Getting into primary schools 
is a really big part of, of what we do because like I said it's too late otherwise they just we lose them to whatever their school decides they should be doing and careers guidance in schools is not brilliant and to be fair to schools that's because they don't get separate funding for it anymore so they can't afford to employ careers advisors specifically to do careers guidance teachers have to do it and teachers aren't best place to do it because they're too busy and they don't necessarily understand all the options so Katie getting into primary schools at the age she does is hugely important but as she says we won't know whether that's any had any effect until 10 years down the line. Um, how do you feel personally about the idea of quotas uh, in your industry? So uh, for non-male shortlists, for example, or to increase the number of people from ethnic minorities in STEM subjects and in STEM fields? So for me, uh, having a quota of a specific number of um, women who have, to be, who have to be placed on shortlists is a sticking plaster. Uh, it's not <coughs> fixing things in the long term. Um, and the the... Um, pushback on it can be almost as detrimental as not having any women on the shortlist mm. in the first place. People who say, oh, well, they've obviously only got the job because they're a woman. Um, and that, that's not that's not right. Nobody should be made. Imposter syndrome is, is difficult enough to deal with, let alone if you've got people on Twitter or social media or in the workplace saying, oh, well, it's just because political correctness meant we have to hire a woman. Um, but the the... The long-term solution is is complicated and means tackling ingrained social behaviours, ingrained um, gender norms right from primary school age, plus tackling it at a, an older age simultaneously so parents understand where unconscious bias comes into play, that employers understand unconscious bias. Um, so in the short term, in certain circumstances, encouraging workplaces to to diversify their shortlist and to be more proactive and to make more of an effort to advertise jobs in different places, to look at the language that they're using so that their their the job descriptions aren't unconsciously putting certain groups of people off is a good thing. Um, I think it's interesting that the, the Tech Talent Charter, which is a, a voluntary charter that technology companies can sign up um, for, Matt Hancock has announced today that the government, um, the government departments that have a technology um, slant are all signing up to the Tech Talent Charter. The wording they use is that where possible, shortlists have to include non-male candidates, but it, importantly it's not a it's not dogmatic, it's, it's where possible. Um, and I think that's, that's important because you still want the right person for the role and it's about um, educating people around what the right person looks like. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think um, it does need to be uh, a certain um, requirement and um, push towards diversity uh, on employers, but I don't think it needs to be as strict as saying there has to be a certain quota. Um, because uh, as a, a female in tech, I'd like to know that I've earned my role in whatever I'm doing on my own merits. Um, and it's the same as being asked to speak at an event. I don't want to be a female speaker on a panel because they need to reach the quota of female speakers. Um, I would like to know that I'm the best person for that job. And if there's a male counterpart that's better, then fair enough, have the male counterpart. Um, and maybe I would work a little bit harder to be the best next time. Um, I think that it's really important for people to know that regardless of the, um, their race, their background, um, their gender, they are the right individual for their job. And I think the long-term things that we can do in schools, in colleges and universities to get different uh, diversity within organisations is what we need to do. There is an argument, isn't there, that um, 
until somebody's given a chance on a panel or as part of a job that there's an inherent bias in how that those people were recruited in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a quite extreme example, but the South African cricket team, for example, inclu includes quotas for non-white players. And you don't, I, don't, I mean, looking at the, the cricket team, they haven't been weakened by those black players being in the team. It's just that those black players wouldn't have been given the chance in the first place to perform at the level that that, that team plays at. And I think there's, there's an argument for that in this, that until you introduce those quotas, and I'm not 100% whether that's, whether that's right or wrong, but until those quotas are introduced and those people therefore have to be given the chance in that sector, which is often, you know, STEM careers are better for a lot of people's life chances because they end up earning more money over their lifetime. But 50% of the workforce is, is in some ways being, being biased against not being recruited into those roles. And I, mm -hmm. I think there's an argument for it. I, d I don't fully agree with quotas, I don't think, in this sense, but that I think I could be convinced fairly easily that that was, that was a good thing to do. That's, that's a personal opinion. Yeah, I mean, the, the next thing I was going to ask about was uh, often the, um, the alternative to quotas is to have sort of blind recruitment. We, we, we do that here, um, so we do blind shortlist and if I'm recruiting for staff I'll get a list of application forms, not CVs, that have exactly the same questions asked, names will be removed, they'll just be a number, um, so we do that here. Um, so I think the blind shortlist and absolutely I think everybody should do that, I, I don't see why, why that wouldn't happen now, that should be made law. <laughs> Um, next one's for the women in the room. Uh, so what has being a woman in STEM taught you? And if you could give any advice to younger women who are thinking of going into STEM or who are thinking of working in the tech industry if, uh, or uh, in engineering automotive, um, what advice would you want to give them? Uh, for me, I think it's built confidence and self-belief, um, knowing that you can do a job that, you know, is not... A woman's job, quote unquote, kind of thing. Um, so it is about telling the younger generation, the younger, or anybody else, any any woman, you know, older, younger, whatever, to to go into a job, a STEM job, whether it's um, well, that's a man's job or that's a, a woman's job, and just go for it. Just apply yourself and do the best that you can, because you know, at the end of the day, you might feel intimidated applying for that job, but you might get that job and then it's the best thing that you've ever done, you know, in your life. I never dreamt at all that I would be where I am today. And I just think, you know, given the opportunity, if you put yourself out there and apply yourself and just work your best, then you can try and achieve whatever. You might even not realise you're achieving something that you eventually wanted yeah. to achieve. You know, it's... Yeah. It is good. I would totally agree. I think it's um, really exciting. It's a fast-moving sector um, in terms of tech. Um, there are so many opportunities for technical roles. Um, there's people are crying out for those skills. So, uh, if it's something that you would be willing to consider, then go for it because you will um, you'll struggle not to find a relevant job in the sector. Um, I think you don't have to be technical. I mean, at school, I hated ICT. Uh, I certainly wasn't technical. I kind of squared by science. Uh, I hated the computer driving license style approach that ICT lessons, and it totally turned me off everything. And I happened to stumble across the sector, and I don't think I could ever leave now. I think um, any other job, I, I think I would struggle to um, work. And now I'm going into businesses, and I'm talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, the internet of things and I never would have dreamed in a million years I would be capable of anything like that. 
I'd say meet people, go to events, um, go to key events in the sector that you're potentially interested in because you might find that the assumptions that you've been taught to make um, are incorrect and please stay in the northeast if you're um, somebody <laughs> with, with technical skills because don't believe anyone that says there's no jobs here mm-hmm. in, in tech because there definitely are and we need you. <laughs> Being a Brown Girl in Science was written and read by Ikra Chowdhury. The Realities of Women in Gaming was written by Celeste Alleman and read by Pef Soulsby. Our interview for this episode was chaired by Ikra Chowdhury and included Naomi Morrow, Laura Richards, Katie Malia and Zach Aldridge. And a special thank you goes to Sunderland Software City, who as well as doing amazing work in STEM, also sponsored all of our podcasts for this year so you can find out more about them by visiting sunderlandsoftwarecity.com <laughs>